0: Hello, please let me see your ticket stubs for the double-edged double bill. This week it's Creed vs. Supergirl, a spin-off off. Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then both will have us pick a number between one and ten in order to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. I am Thomas Mariani, and Adam is still in his sabbatical as he's been for the past month or so, so I'm all alone here in the ring, unless I have somebody else here to help me out. You know, maybe a tag team match against these two movies I've got here who could it be Oh wait, I see up in the sky, it's a bird! It's a plane! It's James Rodriguez back on the show for the first time in far too long. James, welcome back to the show. It's a pleasure to be back, Thomas, and you gotta cut me loose! I need to go take a shit! We'll, we'll sort that out soon. But, in the meantime, James, welcome back to the show. Like I said, it's been too long since you've been on, and uh, today we are here to discuss spin-offs, which uh, was chosen uh, partially by our patrons over at uh, patreon.com slash More on that later. Um, who uh, voted in a poll between which topic we would cover here to tie in with Creed 3, which will be hitting theaters in the States, at least, uh, James, over here um, on the 4th of March. So it'll be this coming Friday that we're releasing this. And uh, we decide on, you know, spinoffs as a potential topic because, you know, we've covered prequels, we've covered sequels, remakes, all sorts of things. Spinoffs is kind of fascinating because spinoffs basically, it can encompass a lot of those things. Where you could have a spin off that is like a sequel or a prequel or whatever, but ostensibly it's focusing on somebody who was, you know, a sort of side character uh, that may have been referenced or was like related to somebody from the original movies. Um, like, for example, you know, you could have your Conjuring franchises where you have like a Conjuring 2 but also you can have like say The Annabelle 3 which is partially a sequel to The Conjuring but also a spin-off about Annabelle but also does involve the Warrens in some capacity. Uh, there's a lot of permutations of how do you feel about the concept of a spin-off as it were James in the modern uh, media landscape?
1: Well, a spin-off can be an interesting thing. The idea can feel a bit tainted because it can often be say a cash grab or something which fails to justify why it exists in the first place. But it can also do something far more interesting than what the original um, preceding film or, or TV show or whatever media did. I mean, let's not forget in the TV landscape, some of the best shows are spin-offs. I mean, there's Frasier, there's The Simpsons, mm-hmm. and, right. and it's just yeah it feels a bit weighed down by the less favorable ones but there's ample opportunity and ample room for something great to grow out of those beginnings
0: yeah yeah i would agree because like the thing is with you know a sequel or a prequel like that that's a problem with those movies too is that when you have like successful original mm. movie and you make like something that's a direct sequel, I think there's more pressure on that, because it's like, oh, how are you gonna follow this up? Is there sequelitis? What whether this other stuff as opposed to? I think in theory, like the spin off has a lot more fascinating opportunity to it because you can't just like show here's another corner of this universe that you hadn't seen before. Like that's why, you know, to bring up Star Wars a thing on the internet everyone's cool about and no one is not think <laughs> about it at all. Um, like, Star Wars, when, like, they were starting to diverge away from just doing, like, the Skywalker saga, and they were doing initially those movies, like Rogue One or mm-hmm. Solo A Star Wars Story, but those movies, I think, kind of suffered from kind of being too tied to the earlier movies, as opposed to, say, some of the TV stuff, I think particularly Andor has done such an Mm. incredible job. That's to show that it does take place in Star Wars. There's, like, references and bits and pieces occasionally. But it is just like, hey, in the corner of, like, your big sci-fi fantasy adventure story, there's a really fucking cool, like, spy rebel show that's going on here. And I think that's, that's, that's what you want. You want, like, an Andor. But then again, you could also get, like, say... Book of Boba Fett, some of these other things that people aren't as hot on necessarily. So, and that goes for any spin-off media, and especially in film, I think it's a bit rougher to do that because, like, you know, Andor wouldn't work as, like, a single movie. Mm-hmm. And, like, trying to sort of tell and introduce a whole different side of this within, like, a two-hour package I think can be quite difficult. But when done right, as we'll, I think, talk about here, it's uh, it can be a thing of beauty.
1: Oh, without a doubt. I mean, it can be just a wonderful example for someone to really then make their mark and tell something different within that same universe. But then it can also be just a bizarre way to layer on the nostalgia bullshit that we all get sick of.
0: True, true. Um. Uh, but let's go ahead and go into our two movies we picked at the end of the last episode where Adam, despite being gone, uh, did submit bad picks for this episode in his absence and I had my two good picks. And I ended up picking at the end of the last episode for our bad pick, which was Adam's, which was Supergirl, and then my good pick, which was Creed, which obviously ties in very well, given Creed 3 is coming out. We'll be talking about the original Creed, as it were, the original spinoff to the Rocky franchise. But let's go ahead and start off with Supergirl. She came halfway across the universe in search of a cosmic power source that
1: could save her world from destruction. Who is she? Who on earth are you? You know, I think I recognize the costume. From the producers of
0: Superman. Supergirl in her first great adventure. Wait a minute, wait one minute. I mean, you can do the whole number leap tall buildings with a single bound. you Can look right through things. Yes. Then steel bars? Yes. Like Superman. He's my cousin. Whoa. Starring Faye Nunaway. Now I am really upset. Peter O'Toole. My neighbors know the criminals, the corrupt, the evil. They're here, over the hill there, with no way out. And introducing Helen Slater as Supergirl. So Supergirl came out, uh, on November 11th, 1984, um, and is based on the character from DC Comics, though, um, wasn't referenced in the Superman movies from the 70s and 80s starring Christopher Reeve, which this is in canon with, in that we do see a picture of Christopher Reeve Superman. Um, he was gonna be in this, and he decided to bow out, I can't imagine why, um, at that point, particularly post-Superman 3, where he would want to not do that. <laughs> this is following, of course, a. Kara Zorel, who is the cousin of Superman, uh, as depicted in the comics, and it uh, follows the journey of her as she tries to save her weird pocket dimension world uh, from destruction, uh, but gets sidetracked by wanting to fuck Ellis from Die Hard and also <laughs> fighting over him with a witch character played by Faye Dunaway. Um, weird stuff happens there. So I'm curious, before we even get into Supergirl, James, are you a fan of that Christopher Reeve era Superman? Um. I've seen the first three
1: of Christopher Reeve's Superman films, and I really like uh, what Christopher Reeve does with the character. I think it's a wonderful depiction that's yet to be matched with these live-action iterations. Sorry, Cavill fans. He just... the writing was never there for me. I liked the majority of what I saw, but I feel, particularly with Superman 3, that the writing just wasn't there to match up to what Reeves performance could do especially with how good the first and second films were
0: yeah uh, we kind of talked about Superman fairly recently on the show in the last couple months because uh, we did our uh, second canon films episode and we talked about Superman 4 which would come after this um, TLDR for me um, I think the first Superman's pretty great until it gets to be like a weird disaster movie I think <laughs> the Richard Donner could of Superman 2 is amazing I think Superman 2 the theatrical version is very dicey because it's part Richard Donner, part Richard Lester. I don't think that meshes up together as well. Uh, Superman three is dire. It's mostly like a bad Richard Pryor movie. That feels like the beginning Mm -hmm. of the end of the Richard Pryor movie to me, honestly, uh, With Superman three. And then Superman four, as we discussed previously, um, very bad movie, but a fascinating example of how a studio can completely destroy themselves by cutting a budget in half in order to make 15 other small budget movies. that would also fail. Um, But you know, in between three and four, we you get Supergirl. Um, and, yeah, this one, actually, I had not seen before uh, Adam ended up picking it. This was always sort of, like, the more infamous example, even compared to, like, Superman 3 and 4. This was the one I was sort of like, oh, this is the worst one. This is so bad and terrible. And um, I do have a lot of thoughts on that. But, James, uh, had you had any history with Supergirl then before you saw this one? And uh, were you a fan?
1: So this is a film I hadn't seen before. I am a DC fan. I think it's particularly the comics, do more interesting things than Marvel. But my my knowledge is mainly centred around Batman. Yes, I am a typical white man, sorry. But Supergirl is a character which I haven't really had a lot of experience with. I could not keep up with that Arrowverse stuff when they kept adding shows Mm -hmm. upon shows. So my biggest exposure to the character was that season she was in Smallville. And I just went into this film, I've, and when I came out, I just felt it's been a while since a film left me that bored. It's just fascinating that it's essentially a film about a ca- title character's race against time, and yet there seems to be a little sense of urgency for in the film or with the character itself.
0: It's weird where like, the initial inciting incident, there's a bit of that urgency that you're talking about, because like, she's in her weird, Like it's the city of... Andor or Handor, I'm not sure what it was called, but it's this big, weird, gauche, like, it it feels like it's made of cobwebs and bullshit, like, city that they're in. I guess all the survivors of Krypton, who we didn't know about until now, because we thought everyone else died, um, is there, including Kara. And we also have Pedro tool and Mia Farrow over there. <laughs> Mia Farrow for, like, a split second. She's just like, I need to get the fuck out of here <laughs> after I'm here for, like, a brief scene. Um, and uh, they're like, oh, yeah, we have this magical MacGuffin thing that um, is the key to keeping our, um, you know, resources alive. Here, you go play with it, Kara. <laughs> go play <laughs> with it somewhere. It's fine, whatever. Uh, it's the key to our entire life source, but sure, whatever. And then uh, that thing gets sucked into space from their little dimensional pocket that they're in. And it's like, oh, no, we got to go and find it. And then Peter 2 was like, don't worry, I'll go do it. And here's how I'll explain how I'm going to use this, like, big machine that can transport things for me to get back. And while he's doing that, Kara's like, no, I want to do it. I want to get out of here. I want to be where the people are. And so she uh, goes off in this machine and transports, I guess, through dimensionally into the water and then rises out in complete Supergirl garb. Because um, you know, at least the the Richard Donner movie explained like, oh, it's like his baby blanket that turned Superman's costume into what it was. Uh, versus, uh, no, this, in this case, she just has the suit now, <laughs> and she's like rises out of the water. She frolics around, uh, looking at the woods, and then no one says, oh, there's an all-girls school. I want to join up with them. And then abandons her mission to save her people who are, presumably, we don't see them, but presumably they're all, like, horribly dying. Which is like, oh, save us! And she's like, oh, Bunny, this is so cute, I love this place, please, we're dying! Um, So, <laughs> that's all going on. Well, also as I mentioned, there is this—the macguffin gets into the hands of Faye Dunaway, who plays this weird witch character, who I don't believe is in the comics, from my understanding, a completely weird original invention, who also initially has the desire of like, oh my god, with this I can control the world and rule with an iron fist. And then, as she's like driving around with her best gal pal, she looks over, she's like, oh, a man, I gotta make him fall in love with me, and not really. She abandons her attempts to rule the world after that, and that's like. About an hour into this two-hour movie, like we're saying, like that's where any kind of story really stops in favor of just like we're fighting over Hart Bachner, Ellis from Die Hard without his beard. So a criminal, Miss you, like, sure he looks hunky and everything, but where's that beard? That's what I want, Hans Booby. He's got to have that beard.
1: No beards, no coke addiction apparently.
0: No, no sale for me, sir. Um, but uh, yeah, that's. That's the trouble. It's just like, you know, this was one of the early examples, I, I believe the first, if not the first, like, female-led superhero movie. So in theory, mm. you'd want to be like, oh, this is, like, a different thing we can do, and we can have, like, an a, you know, actual female-led superhero movie. But in the process of it, um, this becomes a weirdly motivation-light movie that removes any of the agency of these women except for the fact, like, we want to fuck this dude. And that's, like, their only <laughs> motivation to do anything. So it's, like, really backwards, and I feel like this probably hurt the chance for other female superhero movies for so long, because you would have figured, like, when Wonder Woman popped up in, like, Batman v Superman, that should not have been the first cinematic appearance of that character. Like, she's popular enough to where, like, she would have been in something besides the Linda Carter TV show in the 70s at some point. But I think this movie, I think, really killed any chance of that. And it's a shame, because, um, especially considering, you know, I think everyone here is trying. I think Helen Slater, she's very fresh-faced, and she's kind of trying to, like, add a bit of, like, whimsy and wonder to this, and Faye Dunaway's having fun, Um they are lost in this, like, very plotless, meandering movie that's, I agree with you, very dull. It
1: feels very much like the wrong-headed idea of what men creating a wi- women-led film believe it should mm-hmm. be, because it's like when Kara touches down on Earth, one of the early scenes, you just immediately get... Some guys are arriving in the truck trying to do awful things to her. And then when it comes to the main story, or what apparently is the main story, what causes the clash between hero and villain, what is a vital part of the story, is just a horny Faye Dunaway using a love potion to make a gardener fall in love with her. But his escape causes a construction vehicle to chase him, to capture him until he's saved by an alien who he falls in love with when he believes she's a schoolgirl that she's under a disguise with. And it's just like, what the fuck are you on?
0: That's another thing is, like, even before she's dressed up as, like, a schoolgirl, we're very unclear about how old Car uh, is supposed to be in terms mm. of, like, when we initially introduced her, like I said, Peter O'Toole's just like, oh, here's this incredibly crucial object to our universe. Here, play with it. And she's, like, literally playing it with, like like, she's a small child. I'm just like, this mm. is really weird especially as things go along and like when we see her even on earth she's doing stuff like there's a whole sequence where she's with her roommate who is Lois Lane's little sister at this boarding school and they have a huge thing which is like get it underlined she's Lois Lane's sister and she's Clark Kent's cousin oh man how a like, coincidence um there's a point <laughs> where like uh, Lois Lane's sister's babbling on about something and Meanwhile, Kara is, like, putting a bra over her school uniform and stuffing it. And it's like, why would she have any impulse to do that unless she was, like, a child? That feels like something a child would do. When this ends up, this uh, whole, like, love affair thing happens, it becomes all the more bizarre. Not o- also helped by the fact, that, like, the reason he falls in love with her is because um, Faye Dunaway has created a magic potion that he consumes. And apparently, after he drinks that, the first person he sees he will fall in love with. Keep in mind, like between him falling in love with Kara and him drinking that potion, he's walking through the town populated with like a decent amount of people. Like he didn't like lay eyes on anybody. He's walking in the middle of town, but with his eyes fucking closed, I guess. And there's no point where, like, the first person he would have seen, just like, oh, the mailman. I love you, mailman. <laughs> or some <laughs> bullshit like that. Just like, that's what would happen. But it's just like, no, he doesn't look at a single fucking person until he's like, oh, God, thank you for saving me the love of my life. Like, what the fuck is this?
1: Yeah, it just feels very much like, oh, yeah, when you walk through this town, despite you there being people watching you constantly on either side of the road and cars being driven by people going around you. Just keep your eyes closed. Nobody will notice. Right. It's
0: just like, oh, like in a phase, You're just walking around in the middle of the street. Uh, especially for like that whole sequence that takes place in like the small town. Like most of this movie takes place on like one studio block. It looks like mm. they would redress it for like about 20 years later for um, fucking the town from Thor. It looks very similar to, like, that little location, uh, that one small town. But even then, like, the actual fight is filled with, like, a lot of, like, chaotic destruction that is partially caused by Supergirl herself and massive product placement. Like, she becomes Supergirl and starts sitting the day while flying over the Popeye's chicken that's prominently displayed. And it's just, like, it reminded me a lot, weirdly, of the Man of Steel fight. Where, like, there's a point in may of Steel where there's a lot of product placement. Like, she could have just thrown somebody through an IHOP, and it would have been, like, an homage later on from Zack Snyder.
1: Oh, yeah, there was a point when she first enters Lucy's room, and right on the side, in clear view, is a box of, I think, Frosties or something like that.
0: And it's just like, okay, can see where the budget came from, I guess. I will give some credit where I will say, Mm -hmm. I think the flying effects are actually pretty impressive for the most part in the movie, particularly early on, the sequence where she first comes onto Earth, and, like, she spies the flower, and she's, like, flying around the forest. I think genuinely looks like pretty solid effects for the time, especially considering, like, the leaps that have gone on since the first Superman, um, in terms of, like, her actions, like, flying around that look pretty seamless for the era. Um, I don't think I would necessarily say as much when, like, later on, there's a point where Fade Dunaway is like, oh, I have to summon a monster to get after uh, you know, my man, um, this monster appears initially invisibly. Like you just see things destroying all around him. And then when you do see him occasionally as Lakara is fighting him as Supergirl, um, the monster looks very clearly like some Muppet they had in a closet. And then we're just like, I don't know, Jim Henson left this over after he was done with doing the dark crystal. Let's just fucking have this show up. And it'd be like very like weirdly hazy and bullshit like that. Uh, mm-hmm. It's uh and like, there's a lot of stuff in here where like, I could think like, Oh, this is kind of like schlocky fun. Like, I think someone say, like, Superman 4 is. But it's so languishly paced. Like, the two-hour runtime, it just makes, especially all the stuff at the girls' school feel so long. It's just like, why are mm-hmm. we, why, there's nothing even, like, fun about any of this shit. It's just, like, dumb fans are just like, I'm Lois Lane's sister. I'm Clark Kent's cousin. Wow! Ain't that a quinky ding? Um, and that's, like, the most you're supposed to get out of, like, this... Like whole sequence where they're at that girl school, she's like, For the love of God, Edward, f- fucking fly around. Do some shit. <laughs> but the thing is, they have the
1: way a way to link in the school stuff to Selena's evil plan, because the warlock in love with Selena, Nigel, is a teacher in the school. And it feels like, yeah, sure, if he had the power source, maybe that could justify Supergirl going undercover in the school. But it feels like it's two different elements that nobody had an idea how to bring together.
0: Yeah, it felt very like these are from two different drafts of a different screenplay <laughs> version of this, for sure. Um, and uh, that was Peter Cook, of course. Uh, so, you know, royalty over for you over there, James, uh, the, a brilliant English comedian, who I will say um, is, the, the big thing is he's, as you mentioned, kind of like the initial boy toy of Faye Dunaway. Um, and he kind of lives with her and uh, Brenda Vaccaro, um, who's the, the gal pal of Faye Way inside an abandoned amusement park haunted house that also they pay a mortgage on, apparently? Which is also weird, looked totally abandoned, but they have, like, a fully furnished, like, kitchen everything, but they travel around by, like, the fucking carts for this haunted house throughout the house. Hey, the 80s were tough. Well, that's true. I mean, it's tough all over. Um, but also, why would you have to pay a mortgage on that place? It said for sale. And everything up front, just like squalor there, like no one's gonna bother. I will say, I think the most fun stuff is definitely with Donaway Vicaro, and even um, the Peter Cook to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. Like they're kind of like having a weird kind of like thruple situation in that fucking haunted house where it just feels like, oh, they're kind of being like pithy. And especially Faye Dunaway feels like she is still in mommy dearest mode. Like she's still left over from that kind of like campiness. So that's still sprinkled over into this. And it does feel very much like a different movie entirely than what's going on. at the same time. That's the more fun movie.
1: Agreed. She's being more over the top and far more interesting than the rest of the film. It feels like Faye Dunaway understood what the assignment should be.
0: Yeah, that's true. And because, like, th- like, I would love the movie if it was really on their wavelength, where there's mm-hmm. so much of how, or, like, her trying to create potions and uh, Brenda Vaccaro just being like, I don't know, this is going to work, honey, I don't know. And then, like, they're doing stuff like they, when they're looking into a magic mirror at one point, and they can see Supergirl, and then she disappears, it's like, what, what, show her back up? Like, I don't know, I just started that. Like, she's sorceress in training, I love that element of it where it's just like, Oh, she doesn't really know how this works, but she's like, I can kind of figure this out. Like there's a lot of really fun stuff there. It's just that then we have to go over to poor Helen Slater being slayed with either like the uh, schoolgirl stuff or being romanced by Hart Bachner, who keep in mind is mostly still under like a spell at this point. So it's really kind of like there's levels Yeesh. of we- creepy weirdness that's mm-hmm. going on there. <laughs> and as you mentioned, also just like, how old is she? And, She's, like, with this guy who looks clearly like an adult man. It's weird. I don't know what they're going for there.
1: And also, at the end, Lucy Lane makes out with Jimmy Olsen, who's an, yeah, another instance of a school schoolgirl making out with a working man. What the fuck is going on?
0: Yeah, especially, like, if I was Lois Lane, just, like, what, you're you're romancing my little <laughs> sister who's in, like, the private school? Jimmy, fuck off. What are you doing? <laughs> oh, fucking hell. Uh the 80s, man. Yes, the 80s. Um, I will say at least this much. Um, I think this is very bad. I would yeah. still say I dislike Superman 3 a bit more. I think that one is more of like an unfun comedy, especially considering like Superman is even in less of that than he is in any of the other Superman movies specifically. Um, I would say, gun to my head, I would watch Supergirl over that one.
1: I think I'd agree because... As much as I think there's a charm to the whole Superman being a dick by correcting the Leaning Tower of Pisa, stuff like that, it's weighed down by Richard Pryor's stuff.
0: Yeah, yeah, I would say. But um how do you feel also in terms of like, you know, this was at a more innocent time for the superhero movie? Um obviously because mm-hmm. Superman had really been the only big franchise from around <laughs> that era. Um and this is even pre- you know, Timber and Batman. Um and now We have so much of like, you know, spinoffs of different characters in either DC or Marvel. We're going to be getting another Supergirl in another movie soon, though, um, you know, not necessarily a movie I want to see because it's going to be in The Flash and there's a whole lot of problems with the flash and seeing it on like an ethical level. Um, but mm-hmm. how do you feel this like sort of um contrast with like the modern superhero um maybe fatigue? I don't know. I, we haven't talked in a so I don't know if you were in that kind of like fatigue with uh the superhero stuff, as much as I have been vocally on the show as of recent.
1: I was like you, um big into Marvel, but since the pandemic came back, since we got for love and thunder and um marvel capitalizing on nostalgia and giving aboard john krasinski a prominent role in sam raimi's latest film i have just grown bored of the latest marvel stuff i haven't even seen ant-man and the Wasp: quantum mania the disney plus stuff has mainly just passed me by i haven't been interested in watching that stuff and it's a shame um The DC stuff, I feel like there's a lot more potential there. But at the same time, Ezra Miller, that kind of stuff really weighs it down. And I mean, yeah, when Supergirl came out, there was only really one big superhero franchise. And it felt like it could be a bit weirder it could just have supergirl fighting a supernatural warlock a supernatural woman who wants to rule the world and is over the top about it it can have a moment where she just yeah uses her heat vision to make a flower bloom it can just have a randomly changing into clothes because i guess that's a power of hers now it just feels of a different time but at the same time it's more interesting because it's something which couldn't probably couldn't be done today because everything's got to fit into some kind of box in its own way and it's an interesting piece in its own right i think despite i might not be able to consider it a good film or even an interesting film
0: no yeah i think that that's the thing is that i think there are other sort of like spin off stuffs as of recent with like the superheroes that were like, I would say they are more competently made and better mm-hmm. movies than this necessarily. But there is kind of like an interesting charm in terms of like, you know, sort of like the wobbly baby legs of this movie where it's just like, oh, <laughs> we're going to do a Superman movie, but Superman's not in it, but maybe this will work. It doesn't. And this baby in this case is like taking its first sips and falling on its face and crying. Um, but there's a charm that's kind of there. That I do kind of, like, respect a bit. But at the same time, it still does not make this, like, anywhere near good or even, like, a fun, bad watch, anything like that. This is definitely, like, too boring, quite frankly, for me to, like, have that kind of investment. Even though there's, like, a couple, like, funny bits. Like, particularly once we get to, like, um, Kara is thrust into the Phantom Zone and she ends up seeing Peter O'Toole again. And there's a lot of, like, that's where the special effects budget starts to clearly dwindle. (laughs) <laughs> uh, where there's just, like, the, the big tornado that happens and, like, the, the whole thing where she has to, like, during the climax, be inspired by Peter O'Toole's words, where, like, she can't just have that kind of, like, thing inside her of just, like, no, I can summon the strength from within. She has to hear Peter O'Toole say, like, you can do it, Kara, <laughs> after he'd been thrown into a tornado in a very comical special effect in the Phantom Zone and stuff like that. Um, there's stuff like that that I think is, like, kind of, like, oh, it's charming for its limitations. Um, <laughs> but... Yeah, as it still is overall just, like, such a dull. I think, honestly, if you cut all the bullshit at that school, this would be, like, a very bad but fun movie, I think. Because it's, I can't understand how, like, the stuff in the school takes up, like, a solid 20 minutes in the middle of this fucking movie. (laughs) And it's, like, we really don't need that or, like, Lois Lane's sister, any of that shit. If you just cut all that fat and just made this, like, the movie we're talking about, where it's just, like, it's Supergirl versus witch over this man who's kind of a damsel in distress. Like, that sounds like a fun movie that could be, like, kind of cheesy and charming in its own right, as opposed to this just, like, pads shit out way too much, <laughs> and it's pretty dull, I would say, mm-hmm. and not necessarily the best foot forward for a Superman spinoff film. Um, those are my final thoughts. James, do you have any final thoughts on Supergirl? See, you made a good point about it being too long with
1: that padded out school stuff. And funny enough, that's something a lot of modern superhero films have in common. Cut that shit down. We don't need to have it over two hours all the time. Very true. Uh, Supergirl is a curious time capsule. I can't say it's a fun watch. I can't say it's a good film, but at the very least, it's interesting from... That strange opening to the end when Kara goes home to bring back the power source and the lights turn on like she's walked in on a surprise party or something.
0: It's... <laughs> I wish. Just there's a banner <laughs> and that weird fucking sit, just like, ah,
1: surprise, you're back. Um it's not a good film. It's rather boring and dragged down, but at least Faye Dunaway's having a blast. I just wish more of that could have been reflected in the actual
0: film itself. For sure. For sure. But we got to talk about a much better spin-off film in its own right uh, now, because we're moving on to our good film Creed. You're not built for this. These boys come in here. They got to fight for life. People die in the ring. Your daddy died in the ring. I don't know him. ain't got nothing to do with me this picture's from the 10th round of the first fight right i heard about a third fight between you and apollo behind closed doors that true how do you know all this i'm a son This guy here—that's the toughest
1: opponent you're ever going to have to face. I believe that's true in the ring, and I think that's true in life. You show me something.
0: So Creed came out November twenty fifth, twenty fifteen, from director co writer Ryan Coogler, and of course this is uh, part of the Rocky franchise. There had been six movies with Rocky in the title before this, and Sylvester Stallone just reprised his role here. But we mainly focus on the Adonis Creed character, who is the illegitimate son of Apollo Creed, who was played by Carl Weathers in the original movie. So before we get into anything about Creed, James, what is your relationship with the Rocky franchise? There was a large point in my life
1: where I would say how I had never seen Rocky and people would just be shocked by it. I just was never interested in this film until I heard Ryan Coogler and Michael B. Jordan were making Creed because I had watched their previous film, Fruitvale Station, and Mm -hmm. adored it. And that got me interested in Creed, so it finally gave me the push to go through the Rocky franchise. And I do quite like it, the early films especially, but I do feel the series goes downhill after the first film, until Rocky Balboa bucks the trend by being excellent. And I got all caught up in time for creed when it came out here it was like the january or february the year in 2016 after after the u.s got it because um uk has to get things late especially oscar stuff dear god but i was just blown away by creed and hot take this is my favorite entry in the entire rocky universe I went through the Rocky franchise, and I was like, yeah, I like going through that, but I can't see myself going back to any of them. I've seen Creed three times, and its I'm definitely going to see it a lot more, because I absolutely love
0: this film. Well, I'll say that um, I had gone for a while where I'd only seen the original Rocky when I was mm-hmm. younger, um, I loved the original. I still, I think the original Rocky is one of my favorite movies of all time. I think that movie's just such a perfectly constructed kind of like underdog story about just like this guy who's clearly down with his luck, and it feels very authentic and grimy in that '70s way, but still very sweet and sincere, and like a big blockbuster kind of like crowd pleaser movie that I still think is like so perfectly constructed. And I think Rocky is one of the more consistent franchises out there. I would say I like pretty much all of the Rocky sequels aside from five. Like mm-hmm. that We talked about 5 on the show previously, uh, that one is easily the worst one, by quite oh, yeah. a large margin. But I like a lot of the other ones, even when it gets sillier. Like I would say, like Rocky 3 I think is the height of the fun, sillier ones for me, with Mr. Mm-hmm. T and everything, I think that one's charming. Even Rocky 4, the ultimate montage, I think is really fun. 2 uh, has some charms, and I do agree though, I think Balboa is my favorite, like the, the sequels with Rocky in the title. Because it kind of, like, brings him back down to earth and does a really beautiful job with it. Um, which is why, when this was coming out, I was very worried because I thought Balboa, like a lot of people did, I thought Balboa was such a phenomenal kind of close to this. And we got, like, you know Stallone's swan song to that character and felt like a solid bow on the franchise. So hearing they were doing Creed, I was like, I don't know. I did like Fruitvale Station as well, so I'm like, okay, this could end up pretty well. Or it could be, like, this independent filmmaker making a entry in a franchise and then completely, you know, being swallowed up into the franchise machine in a disappointing Mm. way. So it could have gone either way. Um, and then I did see Creed and while I don't think it is like the absolute best necessarily of the franchise to me, I think it's like a very close number two to the original Rocky, which is so rare to have, especially with seven entries into a franchise and mm. this one being sort of like this off kilter spinoff. Um, at the same time, I, I think it, it, I agree with you that it's an incredible movie. I think it's a beautiful example of kind of how to do that same thing I was talking about earlier with the original Rocky of making like something that feels like very character focused and emotional and powerful, but at the same time, an amazing crowd pleaser movie. Um, I'll get to it later, but I Creed also was just one of the best experiences I've ever had in the movie theater. I'll go into more Ooh. detail with that, but I think it's one of my favorite theatrical experiences I've ever had. But before we get into that, so the big thing with this movie is obviously, as I mentioned, we follow Adonis Creed, is played by um, Michael B. Jordan, who initially is uh, Adonis Johnson, who um, is the illegitimate son of Apollo Creed, who gets adopted by Apollo Creed's wife, uh, Mary Ann Creed, played by Felicia Rashad here, and it's an interesting, I think, setup where... To contrast with like what Rocky, who was like this guy who was a a bum in Philadelphia, had no kind of like real like connections or big time goals. He was just kind of like a dude who boxed and didn't have much of a life as opposed to Adonis um, is a guy who initially came from sort of like he was going from foster home to foster home. He had been thrown into like a juvenile center and then he gets swept back up um, into the creed of it all when he finds out his actual lineage. So he's a guy who initially came from nothing, but at a very early stage in his life got Everything he could ever want like big palatial house like so much money a great job as we see earlier on but he has that instinct to be a boxer and that's the clash here there and I think that's such a fascinating way of differentiating this from Rocky we're just like we're not telling the exact same story because this guy has a lot already like he's got he wasn't born with a silver spoon in his mouth but he got that silver spoon pretty early and so he can actually, like, do a lot of different stuff, but he wants to go back into this because it's more of, like, his passion, and he eventually realizes, like, oh, it's something that's kind of, like, in my blood and I have to kind of, like, struggle with that. You think that's a solid different take for, like, a Rocky-style movie where you have that kind of origin for the character? I think this film does
1: really well to set it apart from the Rocky franchise, and, I yeah, I think that's down to how they examine... Donnie as a character there's that scene early on where Marianne says to uh, Adonis about the hard times uh, Apollo faced behind closed doors where after a fight he couldn't get up the stairs or even clean himself and despite Donnie knowing that what the end result was for his father he still has that desire and I think that adds this fantastic layer about the weight of legacy which Donnie feels he has massive expectations put on his shoulders because of who his father is. But I feel that's also reflected really well in the film because it's living up to massive expectations of the Rocky franchise, particularly that first one. And I think it's captured so very well. And Michael B. Jordan is phenomenal in that lead role. I mean, he's so naturally charismatic, But he also has moments where he conveys his inner worries about not living up to his dad's name. He gives one of my favorite performances in the 2015 film. And, okay, I know Oscars and award season, it's all meaningless at the end of the day. It's it's not the be-all,
0: end-all of these films. I don't know what you're talking about. Everyone's still talking about Coda. Come on, James. (laughs) Everyone still loves and watches Coda, last year's Best Picture winner.
1: Oh yeah, that and Green Book are mainstays in everyone's households.
0: Exactly, everyone has a DVD copy that's right next <laughs> to their TV. Everyone loves it.
1: Uh, but despite all that, I I'm baffled that Michael B. Jordan was not Oscar nominated for this. I mean, okay, look at the performances from that year. I lo- okay, I like Michael Fassbender and Steve Jobs, but really, um, Brian Cranston in Trumbo. Leonardo DiCaprio in The Revenant. Um. Oh, how was Eddie Redmayne in The Danish Girl considered more fucking award worthy than Michael B. Jordan? Ugh.
0: Fucking yeah, old. especially Brian Cranston in Trumbo is especially like the worst offender to me for that. Where even though I've, Eddie Redmayne's very offensive for a lot of reasons, mm. but Trumbo, it's like really, Brian Cranston's in a fucking bathtub like half that movie. And it's like, <laughs> Oscar, great, wonderful. It's just like, I don't know. Why are we doing that? I agree with you. I think Jordan does such a phenomenal job in this movie, especially with playing a guy who has, like, a believable temper, which I think is, like, so hard to, like, convey. I think even Creed 2, while I do like it, I think it has some of these problems for like, conveying that kind of, like, makes it, like, a dude who's, like, genuinely investing and who you want to, like, root for, but at the same time has a lot of believable reasons, like, why he would, like, be, like, very up in arms about people calling him Creed, baby Creed, like, as he does throughout the movie, kind of like his, his and his origin point where he got into a lot of fights when he was, like, not in foster care and juvenile detention center and stuff like that. I, I believe that guy is hot headedness. So I can believe why that would get in the way with like his boxing or his life in general, you know, that's that inner struggle. I think really seems believable, especially with that great moment involving him and Stallone. Once he actually starts training him about like the biggest guy you have to fight in the ring is right there. And he looks at the mirror reflection, just like this guy. I believe that in boxing. I believe that in life, your biggest opponent, you always face off against is that guy. And I think it's a movie about that kind of inner struggle about being someone who, like, does not have, like, true self-respect, and so that really hinders his ability to, like, move forward in life and not dwell on the past, and I think it's even a case with, like, to contrast him with Rocky, who's in a similar boat, which is, like, very stuck in the past, very much stuck in, like, oh, I remember my Adrian and how much I loved her, and I can't move on, and I can't, like, confront my son, who I haven't talked to in a while, because he just can't, like, he's still stuck in that one place in Philadelphia, and I think like that contrast between the two of them is so beautiful to where, you know, I agree that I think Jordan should have gotten more recognition, but Sylvester Stallone did get a lot of recognition for this, was nominated for an Oscar mm-hmm. Best Supporting Actor, lost to Mark Rylance and Bridge of Spies, which is a big point of contention for a lot of oh, people yeah. that he ended up losing. Uh, and, you know, as much as Stallone at this point has been like in so many sort of caricatured kind of roles, like very much is known for like the sort of parodies of Rocky kind of like making kind of a joke to some extent. Um, he's always been so phenomenal in that role. And I think particularly here in Creed, it is such a beautiful example. Of just like a guy who does totally feel just like his life is behind him. his good, All of his good times are in the past, as he says at one point, just like, look, up on that wall, that's where I am, gone, forgotten. That's all who I am. And it's a, it's a beautiful performance from him as well.
1: He is so good. I mean, yeah, the character took some turns towards... The cartoonish in the sit in the earlier films, but this film really brings him back down to earth. And it's at that point when he gets that cancer diagnosis, and you just feel that he's he's lived his life. He just wants to be reunited with his wife. He's happy to let his story end there. And it's throughout the film you had Stallone and Jordan have just a wonderful pairing, you really believe in their relationship as Donnie gets the closest thing he's ever had to a father figure. So when you've got that later point when Rocky says to him how they aren't a real family, that just breaks your heart. And that comes back when he's grappling with the news of Rocky's cancer and yeah, when he's later in the jail cell and Rocky's trying to mend bridges in a way. And and Adonis, his anger comes out as he says how Rocky got his real family killed. It's heartbreaking, and you feel it in both of those performers. Stallone was really damn good, and yeah i I haven't seen Bridge of Spies, but from what I've seen, Stallone deserved that award. He was just brilliant
0: in this. Yeah, I like Mark Rylance in *Bridge of Spies*, but I would still say mm-hmm. I agree. I think this is the the stronger performance, and nothing else would have been a, the rare example of like a genuinely great performance that also doubled as a career award for Stallone. Because oftentimes it's way more of like a career award someone's given for a performance that doesn't deserve it necessarily. As opposed to it would have been like that's the rare like Venn diagram that's perfect. I'm just like that would have worked perfectly for him. But regardless of him winning an award for it or not, um, it's such a beautiful performance where I agree. As like we. We go along with that cancer diagnosis, that, that beautiful moment where he's talking to uh, the doctor and she tells it to him. And she's like, but well, we can start chemo and it can be, you know, we caught it early. We can help you get through this right away. And she's like, you know, my wife went through that. And it didn't really turn out so good. So I'm not going to, I think I'm, I'm thinking good thank you for your time. Like, that's the thing. Rocky, what I love so much about him as a character in the earlier movies is like, he's so nice. He's such a, like, he's a dummy. Yeah. But he's so incredibly like nice and well meaning and doesn't assume the worst out of people. And like as you go along through like all these movies, like how he becomes like such a big celebrity, but at the same time he just does not let that go into his head at all. Like when he's like trying to train Creed and everyone's like, Oh my god, it's a champ. It's rock. He's like, hey, how you doing? Yeah. I'm just training him real quick over here. Like it's <laughs> it, there's such a like a beautiful charm that's there with that. But it doesn't like Sloane doesn't let his laurels like rest on that necessarily in any of these movies. I think every time Rocky still feels, at the same time that he can be in, like, silly situations, like giving a fucking robot to his <laughs> brother-in-law in four and shit like that, um, he still is, like, consistently, like, a very grounded human person, even if he's going through silly, over-the-top situations, and I think, in this movie in particular, it does such a beautiful job with, like, allowing him to do that while also still having a bit of that humor at the same time. Like, I love so much the bit where um, uh, Adonis comes up to him when he's trying to unpack stuff for his restaurant and they're try- he's, like, giving him moves and stuff like that. And then he takes a picture of, like, all the notes that Rocky did for him. Just like, oh, well, hey, don't you want this paper? It's like, I know I got it here. What if you break that thing? It's in the cloud. And fucking Rocky looks up and says, what cloud? What cloud? <laughs> That's a perfect Rocky joke where, like, he would be that specific kind of dumb where he does not know what an iCloud is. But it's just like, no, you know what? It's 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 so charming at the same time that it's a very beautiful, nuanced performance. It's also just it's Rocky at his most charmingly dumb. Agreed. That's the cloud
1: moment is the perfect way to highlight maybe a generational difference or um, an unfamiliarity with technology without feeling like an okay boomer
0: moment. Right, yeah, because it's still coming from Rocky Wong to be emotionally intuitive. He still wants to help out a Adonis, just like, you might need this people later. <laughs> like, you might need this to help you out. Um, it, it, that's the thing, is that, that's what I've loved in his the best of the Rocky movies, is that em- emotional intuition that makes up Rocky's intellectual uh, lesser points, necessarily. He's, he's always very mm. emotionally intuitive, which especially works out with another person we haven't mentioned yet, but I think is like so crucial to this movie as well, is uh, Tessa Thompson, of ends up being the love interest character for Adonis. And, you know, we could risk having her just be, like, another Adrian or even a lesser character, but mm. I love their relationship and how that blossoms with, like, her playing her music and him coming down and then, like, inviting her out to dinner and even, like, um, that she loves music so much, but she has this uh, progressive hearing loss that she's dealing with. So she knows, like, yeah, it's finite, but at the same time, I, I just want to keep doing what I love as long as I can, which makes her a perfect sort of, like, equal with uh, Adonis where they both are just like people who are dealing with careers that for both of them are finite with like, mm-hmm. he can't box forever. She can't sing forever, but they really love being able to do what they can while they can. And especially once it, that ends up sparking the relationship that really blossoms wonderfully throughout this whole movie. And I love like their, their back and forth It's really charming. It doesn't feel like we're just recycling like the Rocky Adrian relationship. Cause she feels like a completely different woman. Who's like not all mm-hmm. shy, very much like open and, um, very, like, sly and sarcastic and charming. Her and Jordan have beautiful chemistry together. I love how their relationship develops over this. And even in Creed 2, I think the strongest stuff is their relationship in that movie.
1: Agreed. Tessa Thompson is fantastic as Bianca. And I loved how there's that moment where Donnie pretty much punches her headliner at her show and he comes around to apologise and explains what's going on Rock- with Rocky. It could have been very much just paper over the cracks like oh, it's okay, let's move on. She understands what Donnie's going through but she still doesn't let him off easy because he still worked through his emotions by assaulting someone. The moment where she turns off a hearing aid while he's outside the door is honestly heartbreaking and that's because you have these two characters who have been wonderfully developed from their initial meeting over the loud music to their fun little moment in the restaurant where she's teaching him the ASL for bullshit. And it's wonderful to see them just united and working together throughout that uh, by the end as they come through it all. Plus, it helps that you have two really hot people sharing some wonderful chemistry.
0: Very true, very true, yes. Uh, and also, I love that bit where she doesn't know that he's a creed until, like, it kind of slips out at a certain <laughs> point and, like, like have a confrontation about it. And she's just like, I, you know, I, I don't care that you're that guy. I just would want you to be honest with me about that, especially since it's something that you're kind of dealing with and boiling over. And I like how even when you get to that point later on where, like, the assault feels like it's a much better example of, like, in a lesser movie, I think you would have had, like, oh, you're a creed and you didn't tell me. We're breaking off for a bit. And then mm-hmm. I'm reunite with you. And I think the, the assault thing feels like more realistic, just like you're, you're yes. kind of showing me you're a bit more dangerous in a way that I don't really like necessarily. But then they do reunite, and I love that scene too. It's a great example of how Rocky enters into like their relationship where like they're at the hotel in Vegas right before the fight, and Rocky keeps looking over at the door. <laughs> he's like, he's too early. Every day he's like, oh, did you hear something? Beep, beep, beep oh look someone's knocking at the door <laughs> and then they reunite it's very sweet but then Rocky's just like hey you know I'll just leave you kids alone Hey, remember what I said about legs women weak legs <laughs> it's it's very charming especially like, the three of them and especially even like her uh, Bianca and Rocky I do love how they kind of like still have like a, a really positive connection with like the bit where they're at the dinner table She's like oh I can't this is so different from what I normally do it's used to covered in sauce <laughs> and they're all like, really charmed by it
1: and there's one little bit I love when um, Donnie's moving out to go stay with rocky for training and bianca shouts him like that's your uncle but he's white and rocky's just like yeah all my life and
0: <laughs> and she's just like look i you didn't tell me your uncle was rocky Balboa." <laughs> yes <laughs> it's it's really charming there yeah and then of course this is a boxing movie we have to get to some of the boxing sequences because along with being a really great emotional character study it's so well shot Whenever we get to the boxing sequences, you are like fully immersed, like the way, especially during like that first fight where it's um, Creed versus that one guy who's like uh, the son of the guy who owns the gym, who owns Mm -hmm. Mickey's gym at this point. That fight is so well shot where like the, the camera is right there with the fight and it's like this big one shot, but it doesn't feel as like showy and annoying as like a lot of one shots like you mentioned the Revenant earlier where that's where he just, like, loves to, like, dwell in a masturbatory fashion about one-shots, versus the one-shot helps to serve the fact that, like, you're in the middle of this, like, huge boxing match, and you are just, like, with those guys that they go across, like, to each corner and go over to their managers and stuff like that. It is one of, like, all the fight sequences are beautifully put together in this movie.
1: Oh, yeah, you've got, yeah, that one-shot fight is just so phenomenally done, and then you've got that final fight where you feel every blow and the blood splatter on the ring. It's all impactful. It's so great. But I love how, through it all, Ryan Coogler doesn't forget the human stuff. So before his first big fight, Donnie gets nervous and he has to cut the gloves off, as I referenced right. at the beginning, because he yes. desperately needs to shit. Or yes. after that fight, when they're, him, Bianca, and Rocky are just all excited and they're like yeah let's go tear up the town and then next thing they're f- asleep on the sofa while watching skyfall
0: right and then also the right before that final fight when he gets the fucking trunks one of many oh, examples yeah. of the movie where I'm just, I'm fucking crying, man. Like, that's the thing. A great Rocky movie makes me fucking well up with tears. The original mm-hmm. Rocky, that whole climax, like, the moment Adrian pops up, I'm just like, I'm gone. I am i can't see the movie anymore. I'm, like, fucking mm. crying. I bought my eyes out. This movie does a great job of that, where so many of these, like, little moments that are, like, could just be really bad fan service, but really work to like get you invested in like what the like legacy that we're dealing with analysis because you mentioned it's kind of like a weird meta contextual thing where it's a dealing up with the legacy of both the rocky franchise and for Adonis like the legacy of Creed and all this mm-hmm. like it really helps like get you invested to where like any of those like callbacks or shout outs from the earlier movies just feel like we're weaving the tapestry of, of the world these characters where it isn't oh, yeah. just like a wink and a nod it's like no it actually means something like early on when Adonis first meets Rocky at the restaurant it's just like oh I heard you had a fight with Apollo behind closed doors running the thing from Rocky 3. That's just a great example of, like, that feels just like family history, instead of just like, oh, remember that? At the end of Rocky Three trivia, let me explain to you this Easter egg, everybody. (laughs) It, like, (laughs) it actually means something for the characters.
1: The film does this wonderful thing where all throughout you hear hints of Bill Conti's iconic song. You also have characters getting to the heart of Donnie. They question, like, what's motivating you, and what are you afraid of? And it feels like, yeah, Donnie's fighting to get out of his father's shadow throughout the film, but In a metacontextual level, he's also fighting to get out of Rocky's shadow in the audience's eyes. And once the news comes out that Donnie is Creed's son, they immediately jump on him, calling him an embarrassment. They compare him to his father. It's stuff Donnie didn't want because he doesn't want a bad reputation to his father's legacy. But the film also includes great moments where they put this brand new spin of this character doing these classical moments such as you got Donnie he's running through the streets of Philadelphia while he's outrunning the bikes that he previously commented yes. on and it's such a lovely moment and I feel it all bubbles up until that final fight when Donny just lets out how he's trying to prove he wasn't a mistake and that moment chokes me up every time I see it and it leads perfectly to my favorite moment in the film where Rocky just tells him, you're a creed now. And it's like he's saying, you're the rightful heir to this legacy your father built. You deserve this. You are not a mistake. You've been working towards it, and he would be proud of you. But hes it feels like he's also telling audiences, this character is the right person to carry on this legacy that Sloane built ever since the first Rocky film. And then when Donnie stands up for the final round, and Gonna Fly Now just plays, oh, you feel it. And... I'm just so energized and I'm like, I might as well be jumping out my seat and just going, yes, Creed.
0: Well, I guess that that's a segue, I guess, into the theater experience I was talking about earlier. When I watched this in the theater, most of it was just like a normal, like kind of like really fun. Like it was a packed house. It was like the Thursday night. This is Thanksgiving. So of course mm-hmm. this is in the States. Like everyone went out to the movies and it was like that night before Thanksgiving and everyone was like, you know, charmed by it. Like, like a solid theater audience then during that final fight, people in my audience were literally cheering Creed on like they could fucking hear him. <laughs> like they, like <laughs> Creed could hear them, basically. And it's like one of the best moments where it's like in any other audience experience it'd be just like sit the fuck down what are you doing but I'm just like you know what I'm swept up with everybody yeah I'm not gonna get up like people were fucking cheering on Creed that's like such the power of like what you're talking about where so much of this stuff has been building up so perfectly to where it's not just like you know a big like Easter egg fest like referencing things from earlier mm-hmm. movies kind of deal it is genuinely building up a great arc for like this character who've grown to love with a lot of stuff like even a great sequence that uh, we didn't talk about but the press conference before the fight happened where he actually comes face to face for the first time with uh, Tony Bello as pretty Ricky Um, is like a great example where he is like it's building up a lot of that conflict but in a way where like Rocky says like this is the first fight this is the first part of the fight where you have to realize like he's going to try and get you to say something do something he does end up like agitating uh, Adonis to do something and he ends up losing that particular fight but I think it's like it, it's all part of like sort of the, the that um, early build up stuff works and especially the fact that like Pretty Ricky is a great example of like a in a, the Rocky villain pantheon of somebody who kind of mirrors the our main character where he has a similar like, kind of like hothead energy like he's been accosting people outside of the fights and stuff like that mm-hmm. and um, so all that stuff helps to build up like you mentioned like that final fight I do agree with you was like so beautifully done especially even the main thing you forgot about Stallone's speech to Adonis is you you're a creed, and I love you. So it's not only oh, like, yeah. oh, you're worthy of the legacy of your father, but also, I love you like a father, and you mean so much to me, and I want you to like do this because I know you can – and like even like what people down there like even felicia rashad when she's on her fucking couch she's just like yeah <laughs> hell yeah baby you do it and then later on which is he references like i want to thank my mom who's watching i love you mom i'm i hope you're okay over there she's like you they gave me a heart attack but i'm okay i'm proud of you <laughs> <laughs> and stuff like that it's so charming and yeah i i agree that especially even when he's getting interviewed and just like what would you uh say to your your father to apollo if he was here and he just it's just like tell him that you know i hope he's proud and, and i i'm I'm happy to keep living on his legacy. Just all that stuff. It's so emotionally gut wrenching. It's so beautiful. And this is all the stuff even after like all the cancer stuff with Rocky, which mm. is like the big thing. Is like the you know sort of him training Adonis. Also coincides with Adonis helping Rocky through his cancer and eventually like kind of beating it. And I just love that where it's like he even says just like you know if you're gonna fight, I'll fight too. And that's such a beautiful thing to lead up to once again, these two becoming like a, a real family to where By the end of that, another great example of like doing, you know, the, the kind of like callbacks in a beautiful way, them very delicately going up the stairs mm-hmm. to the Philadelphia Art Museum. And they're still having a bit of jokes just like, no, old man, you got to go all the way up. It's just like, let me catch my breath. Hold on. It's, it's, it's really beautifully charming and uh, to, to the degree that, yeah, it's it's such a great fucking movie. And so I'm, I'm curious, how do you feel about sort of them continuing this as its own franchise? We've had Creed 2 and mm-hmm. we're about to get Creed 3 with Michael B. Jordan making his directorial debut. And Jonathan Major is one of his many uh, attempts to take over cinema right now uh, between being Kang and all these other things where he's popping up. How do you feel about like Creed continuing as a franchise in its own way?
1: We had this first film establishing Creed and his part in the Rocky universe, and we had this second film, which, well, dealt with the fallout of Rocky Four, and because yeah, if you're going to do Apollo Creed's son, that's the elephant in the room that needs addressing. So. Yeah, it's it's a money maker. So yeah, they I guess they gotta continue on. When I'm happy for it, as long as the films keep engaging me. But I'm glad that the series seems to be going in a way to forge its own history and its own groundwork with the characters, rather than relying on what Rocky previously built. And uh, Jonathan Majors, yeah, you've got my attention. He's I've only seen him in The Five Bloods, but I thought it was phenomenal. I want to see more of him, and I'll happily take more of him. And Michael B. Jordan's directing. It feels like more like it's connecting to the Rocky franchise because Sylvester Stallone directed so many of those uh, sequels. And I'm an anime fan. Michael B. Jordan saying he turned to anime for influence in Creed 3 I'm their opening night.
0: I've heard a lot of the early reviews, too, are very much like it's an anime-influenced boxing boom. Just, like, even as a non-anime fan, I'm just like, okay, that sounds weird. I haven't seen that before. <laughs> that sounds, like, fun. Um, but, yeah, and I think I, I am a bit curious because, like, I I like Creed two. I have some mm-hmm. issues I revisited recently. I, I have some things where it's, like, I think they pull back Adonis' character development a lot in that movie. That's my biggest problem with it. It feels like he just kind of becomes that hothead again for reasons I can understand, given it's, like, the son of the guy who killed his father and all that. I get Mm -hmm. some of that, but it feels like they really pulled back too much, and it feels a bit more, like, kind of, like, because Stallone actually wrote that one. He didn't write Creed, and it feels like there's a bit more of, like, the Stallone-isms coming into that character in a way I was still, like, I liked it, but still was not huge on this That's probably, I would say, the weakest Rocky movie I still kind of like is Creed 2. Um, but at mm-hmm. the same time, there's still great stuff like Dolph Lundgren and all that. There's, there's, there's interesting elements that kept it fascinating for me. And especially this new one being, one, no Stallone in it at all, because he's just a producer, because he's been mm-hmm. in those big conflicts with Erwin Winkler, the big guy who's been producing all these movies, where, like, he was on Instagram calling him, like, a bloodsucker. And his family had, like, a weird photoshopped image of, like, vampire Erwin Winkler sucking blood out of Rocky's neck and shit. What? I was like, okay. Jesus Christ. It's really weird. <laughs> that's, that's why he's not in Creed 3. So there, there's that element of it. And there's also even just the thing with Jonathan Majors' character. Like, from what I understand, based on the trailers, he's a guy from Creed's past who apparently there was, like, a conflict that, like, Creed was involved in as a kid They end ended up skirting out of, and Jonathan Majors went to prison for it, and now he's back mm-hmm. to fight him. That's never been done in a Rocky movie, which I'm really surprised by, honestly, that, like, Rocky never fought somebody who was from his own past, like pre even the first movie it's so weird that has never happened before because it's a perfect kind of confrontation setup for a boxing movie oh shit that's a good point right so like i'm very i was very compelled the moment i heard that's what it was i'm like okay that's different very curious to see how like the emotional drives particularly that takes it down and even you know still more stuff with like you know his daughter as uh, establishing creed 2 and all this other stuff i think there's a lot of directions that I can go down that'd be curious about um I don't necessarily want to go into the degree of like oh by the fourth one um fucking Wood Harris gets a robot or (laughs) something like that. I don't want that necessarily um but yeah I agree that I think Creed can still like have its own direction with this and still be like a really fun consistent franchise that still like lives up to the legacy fully of like what Rocky did originally so I'm all on board for Creed 3 as well but James we've been talking quite a lot about Creed so any final potential thoughts you have about Creed 2015? I adore this film. I think it captures
1: the heart of the original Rocky about, it's not about the title character winning at the end. It's about proving who they are and what they can do and proving those doubters wrong. And I think it's just a very wonderful film about these characters. I really enjoy watching and it grabs my heart, particularly by the end. And those action scenes, they fighting. Good God, they're so good. I love it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I second all of that. I think it's a great movie. I think it's a great example, not just of doing a spinoff, but even like the, the term legacy sequel, where mm-hmm. you have like sort of a, a new person following the footsteps like a person from an earlier part of a franchise. I think this is probably the greatest example of how to do that effectively for me where it has just enough, like, continuity references to the original franchise, but also has a lot more interesting, different stuff that it does. Um, I think it is just incredible. Great performance all around. Wonderful direction from Kugler. Ryan Kugler after this, he did Black Panther, which I thought was pretty tremendous, and Black mm-hmm. Panther, Wakanda Forever. Um, pretty good, despite every single thing that could possibly go wrong going wrong on that yes. production. Uh, yeah, so I know he still is, like, he's apparently signed up to do, like, some kind of Black Panther show with Disney Plus or whatever, mm-hmm. and, like, whatever, but... At the same time, like, I just want that dude to, like, keep being able to do, like, great things. I think he's an incredible director based on, like, Fruitvale Station... Mm -hmm. this, and the two Black Panther movies. I just want him to do interesting different stuff, and I hope he doesn't, like I mentioned, get swallowed up into the franchise machine. Because he also feels like one of the rare guys who, like, actually took a few steps. Because usually when you get, like, somebody directing a Marvel movie, it's some guy who made, like, an extremely small budget movie, and then, like, hey, guess what? You get $200 million to make a big superhero movie. Then you get to do that. He at least had this step with Creed, which is still a franchise movie, but only cost $35 million. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, I hopefully he gets to do like other interesting things that aren't Marvel related, but we'll see. But now everybody, it's time for the weekly segment, the Double Redo. Double redo, double, double redo. redo, double redo, double redo, double double double
1: double double
0: redo. Double, double redo. redo. That works. So The double Redo is a segment that uh, we usually do every week here. In addition to the movies we covered on the show, uh, we uh, recommend a good movie relating to the topic and steer you away from a bad one. And so I'm going to go ahead and start here with uh, my good spinoff movie. I'm going to mention here was my alternate choice. We almost would have done it on the show. Um, I have The Lego Batman Movie, which is technically a spinoff to uh, The Lego Movie, which featured Batman as played by Will Arnett as in a supporting role. And then he got his own Lego Batman movie, which I was very worried, like, oh, I don't know, the Lego movie was such a big surprise, this is going to work out that well, and I think that the Lego Batman movie is pretty fucking great. I think it's a great example of, like, a, another thing that's, like, very reverent to the original franchise, uh, to the, just not even just, like, Batman in movies, but even just Batman as a huge source material to dwell from. But at the same time, it does have its own story about, like, Batman basically taking on a ward in the form of Robin, voiced by Michael Sarah. And uh, him kind of, like, realizing, like, oh, I don't have to be, like, a loner, brooding, like, doofus uh, superhero. I can be part of a family, which also involves, like, Batgirl, played by Rosario Dawson, and Alfred, played by Ray Fiennes. It's a very funny, incredibly heartfelt Kids movie that's like so chock full of jokes. There's like a Joker's played by Zach Galifianakis in here, and the whole relationship with him and Batman, where like Batman says like I don't even think about you that much," but it's like, but I thought I was your arch enemy. What? Like it's almost like a weird rom com relationship they have in the middle of this is very like funny, but also speaks to like the sort of that idea of like Joker being his opposite that permeates throughout like fandom and writing about comics and stuff. Um, I think it's just like such a fun and oddly moving little movie. That still works with, like, all the, like, fun, creative stuff of, like, the Lego movie and, like, the animation still incredible. So many great jokes per minute, everything like that. I think it's an incredible little movie. And it's a bummer that, you know, right afterward that Lego Ninjago movie came out and then not too long after the Lego Movie 2 came out and really sunk that franchise hard. Because especially if you've heard any of the stuff they said that they were going to do with, like, the Lego Batman 2 would have been, like, a sort of Justice League kind of movie where you would have had, like, Superman and Green Lantern have, like, bigger roles. That would have been so fun and would have been, like, way better, quite frankly, than most of that DC Universe bullshit that <laughs> was going on at the time. Uh, but sadly, we didn't get that. But at least we have the Lego Batman movie, which is pretty great. And then for my bad spinoff, um, this is interesting because this is one where, when I saw it in the theater, I actually kind of liked it, and then I revisited it while kind of marathoning again through the franchise, and uh, my opinion really decreased for it. I have uh, The Fast and Furious Presents Hobbs and Shaw, which um, is the, basically the spinoff that follows uh, the Hobbs character, who was played by Dwayne Johnson in the 5th, 6th, and 7th Fast and Furious movies, uh, as well as the 8th, um, uh, kind of having a good cop, bad cop relationship with uh, the Deckard Shaw character, who was a villain that was initially in uh, Fury 7, and then showed up in Eight in more of like a anti-hero role, and now they're both kind of like playing off each other. And I think this was around the time when, like, I really liked this, as I said, in theater. I thought it was fun. But I remember I'd seen it, like, so divorced from the other Fast and Furious movies, which I had only seen, like, once, sort of prior. And then when I re-marathoned them through and then led to Hobbs and Shaw, I realized how much, like, it feels so diametrically uncouth for the franchise to me. Because the problem with Hobbs and Shaw is that, unlike the very sincere, very heartfelt Fast and Furious movies where they play all the dumb stuff, like, fully uh, open arms and, like, no kind of judgment... Hobbs and Shaw feels like it's so much more of, like, a traditional rock vehicle and also very much more of, like, a traditional blockbuster from, like, you know, this recent era where there's a lot of quips and there's a lot of, like, oh, we're going to trade off with each other. But the problem is that, like, that's not a good cop, bad cop thing with Hobbs and Shaw. They're both, like, the bad cop. They're not actually playing off of each other. They're just kind of, like, spitting barbs at each other and, like, bouncing off and there's no, like, real fun to that. It just gets annoying after a while and grating. That's not helped by, like, you know, appearances from, like, Kevin Hart and Ryan Reynolds and a lot of other stuff that just really sinks that movie down for me. It feels not even like it's much of a, you know, Fast and Furious movie. It just feels like it's this, like, script that would have been, like, written for Ryan Reynolds and... Wayne Johnson to do and they just kind of retrofitted it into Fast and Furious and it feels like so like lifeless and emotionless the action scenes don't have any heart in them and just it, it, none of it really works that well for me except maybe the stuff when they um when The Rock teams up with like his brother Cliff Curtis and they have kind of like their fight um with like all the Samoans I thought like that stuff was kind of fun but that happens like two hours into that fucking movie <laughs> and it's like it's it's it just doesn't work for me nearly as well. It's not the worst one in the Fast and Furious franchise for me, but it's a pretty good example to me of like how to do a spin-off that captures none of like the charm and the magic of its original forebearer.
1: Okay, I've seen both of your choices, and I love the Lego Batman movie. I think it's one of the best Batman movies that's been done. It's one of my favorite takes on the character, and Will Arnett is so good at this version of Batman who buries his fears and pains under such bravado while pushing everyone away and learning to bond with this adorable hope-filled little guy who's he's taken on unwittingly to be honest and I agree that the Batman Joker relationship is so interesting in how they play it in rom-com standards where the culmination comes down to Batman admitting his feelings for Joker. It's This came out a year after Suicide Squad, Jared Leto's take, and you could just feel this is how to do a good Joker after that car crash. As for Hobbs and Shaw, I too remember seeing it in cinemas and rather enjoying it at the time, but I haven't seen it since, and I. The only thing I can rem- remember is that Eddie Marsan pl- pops up, and I believe he used as a flamethrower at one point. It's just not a film that's stuck in the mind. Um, when you mentioned Kevin Hart and Ryan Reynolds appearing, it's just uh, triggered something in my mind that's like the bad memories flying back, because. Even back then when I liked it, their appearances just stopped the film dead. Just so Dwayne Johnson could hang out with his friends, I guess. I mean, good for you, Dwayne. Go make another movie in the jungle.
0: Yeah, go make another fucking Red Notice (laughs) with your buddies. But James, what about your choices for The Double Redoom?
1: Okay, so for both my choices, I've gone for British films. Gee, aren't I breaking through the stereotypes here? For my good movie, I'm going for 2019's A Shaun the Sheep Movie, Farmageddon. Now, this is a sequel from the first Shaun the Sheep movie, which itself was a spin-off from the Shaun the Sheep TV show, which itself was a spinoff from Wallace and Gromit A Close Shave. So <laughs> quite a few layers to that. And in this second Shaun the Sheep movie, um, it f- follows on what worked so well with the first one in how they both utilize silent cinema as a reference point to tap into a universality which has the character says so much and delivers such laughs without uttering lines of dialogue. But where this follow-up differs is that it's also a love letter to science fiction. The film itself sees the residents of Mossy Bottom Farm, great name by the way, they're surprised when an adorable alien named Lula crashes, crashes her spaceship nearby. So what you essentially have is this plasticine take on ET where Sean and his fellow sheep are trying to send Lula home while they're evading a sh- an organization that are trying to capture her for their own means. And you have this loving parody of science fiction that comes from a place of clear adoration, but it's also full of witty gags and utter charm. It's a wonderful little movie from Aardman. And for my bad movie, I'm going for a film that was released just last year called The Nan Movie. Now, this is a spin-off from The Catherine Tate Show, which was a popular sketch show in Britain that ran from 2004 to 2007, starring, oh, surprise, Catherine Tate. And in it, she played various characters who each had their own catchphrases. They included, like, a loudmouth teenager, a closeted gay man... I'm sure it worked very well when watched with today's eyes. And one of the more popular characters was this foul-mouthed Nan who was sweet as pie to people's faces and then criticized them mercilessly behind their backs. So it was very surprising to hear that 15 years after the show ended, Nan was to return in a feature film from Mary Queen of Scots director, Josie Rourke and written by Ted Lasso writer, Brett Goldstein. Now. There's an interesting history to this film. It was intended as a thoughtful period piece set in 1940s London with the intention of finding the heart in this caricature of a monster to show that however horrible characters passed, it informed the person Nan became when viewers saw her in the sketch show. That all changed because reportedly the original cut of the film was presented in 2019 and the financial backers were worried because the film was straying too far from the show's original sketches. So they want it changed. So reshoots were ordered on the cheap without Rourke's involvement, and as such, the wartime scenes, which were to make up the bulk of the film, were cut back, and a present-day road trip that was meant to be the film's framing device became the main bulk of the film. So now, the film instead focused on Nan evading a vengeful traffic warden, Nan forcibly committing domestic terrorism, and closes with her feeling better because the man she wished she married... She's glad she didn't because it turns out he likes to dress up in women's clothing. This was considered a complete movie, which was given a wide release. There's some scenes which the reshoot budget could not cover. So the way they got around it was by having live action film suddenly with no explanation transition into the most ugly cheap looking animation, which looks like newspaper clippings given the slightest, slightest bit of movement. It's horrendous to look. It's astounding that in 2022, this shit got a fucking release in cinemas. And because of all that drama, we now have a mid-2000s relic that was released without accredited director and one of its stars, Matthew Horn. Went to out and claimed that the reason this film failed at the box office was because of the war in Ukraine. This was easily the worst film I saw
0: last year, and wow, don't watch it. Uh, yeah. So um, <laughs> I, I have not seen the Nan movie. Uh, I love when you mentioned that uh, you were gonna put this as your bad pick. Um, I you described it to me asking if I had any idea what it was, and I literally just responded with, like, I know who Catherine Tate is. Because I've seen, like, the, the later episodes of the U.S. office, and also I have seen her episodes of Doctor Who uh, and stuff like that, so I know who Catherine Tate is, and I think she's, you know, can be quite charming in the right spots. But, you know, I'm at least glad that the Brits are keeping alive the era of bad SNL movies that we long got over in the States. Because <laughs> that's, that's really what this sounds like, It's like, a really bad, like, 90s-era SNL movie. <laughs> Um, but you know, all of that detail is fascinating, especially the, the Brett Goldstein and, uh, Josie Rourke of it all. Uh, that sounds right? fascinating, especially James shared a photo with me of, 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 still from the film. And, uh, yeah, it looks rough, real rough. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I have seen, uh, the Shaun the Sheep movies, both of them, and, and including Farmageddon, and I quite like them both, um, not my favorite Aardmans necessarily. Uh, mm-hmm. but I do agree that like they, they work very well for me, like these, like there's no dialogue and stuff. It's very like silent comedy kind of thing, and I think they're both very charming. I would say I prefer the Shawn the Sheep movie, the first one, slightly. They're definitely ones that like appeal to like a whole family as opposed to just children kind of thing. I would definitely say anybody can uh, watch this and have a lot of fun with them. Mm-hmm. Um, but those are our titles, so we'll just go ahead and repeat them real quick. Uh, my good pick was the Lego Batman movie. And my bad pick was The Fast and Furious Presents Hobbs and Shaw.
1: And my good pick was a Sean the Sheep movie, Farmageddon. And my bad pick
0: was The Nan Movie. Yeah, so I guess uh, if you're in the States, fire up them VPNs if you want to somehow see The Nan Movie.
1: It is available to rent in America,
0: I know that. Okay, well, I'm sure (laughs) we'll all love it based on your glowing recommendation. (laughs) Uh, But... Um, before we get out of here and do our picking for next week, stay tuned for that at the very end of the episode. Um, we have some people to thank. Like We want to thank our, uh, uh, the person who does our music, Chris Oliver, for our intro and outro music. Uh, listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Uh, thanks to Christian Thor Lally for our artwork. Uh, follow him at Night of Water. That's night with a K underscore of underscore water for all of his great stuff. And uh, thanks, of course, to our supporters on Patreon. Patreon.com slash D-E-D-B-Pod where for just uh, one dollar a month you get access to bonus podcasts that we do. Um, we do at least one a month including around the time this uh, episodes come out. Uh, we would have already released recently our uh, first ever attempted an award show the Dubs Awards where Adam and I Adam came out of a sabbatical for this uh, went through uh, 10 different categories and each had you know our five nominees for stuff like you know uh, the various performers of the year and the best films, animated international, best film overall, stuff like that. Um, that If you pay the $1, you can hear all two hours of that. It's a bonus content there for you before the Oscars, maybe after the Oscars, after they inevitably disappoint you with who they pick as their winners. Um, and, of course, also uh, later on in March, our bonus episode will be our yearly March Madness, which uh, this time we're going to be doing best animated film. And uh, around the time this comes out, you'll be able to see our seeding. We would have put that out for all the different titles, including a couple that were picked by our patrons. Um, And, you know, speaking of our patrons, uh, not only is he a guest on the show, but he also is a patron. James, thank you so much for being back on the show. Really appreciate you coming back on, helping me out, and being my guest host here for this week. Where can people find you on the internet? Go ahead and plug yourself. Thanks for having me back. I've loved it. Um, Shame Adam can be
1: here, but... Uh, maybe we're the same person. Ooh. Oh, what a twist. Ooh. and um, I loved your
0: episode of the dubs. Was odd. I did not expect a Morbius sweep, though. You know, you can't spoil that shit, man. They gotta, they gotta get behind the paywall for that Morbius sweep.
1: Um, but yeah, if I've not put you off listening to more of me or reading my stuff, you can find me on Twitter or whatever social media in where everyone migrates to at uh, RoddersJ04, that's spelled with two Ds. My writings, uh, reviews, articles, podcast appearances are all collated into the reviewingrodders.co.uk. So yeah, come check that out.
0: Yes, yes, please do. And uh, for more of us, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram at DEDBpod. And also you can uh, submit feedback to us either there or at our email, double bill at gmail.com, all spelled out. And uh, for more of me, you can uh, find me on Twitter and letterboxes at NotTheWho'sTommy. And I also do some writing at uh, mariannithomas.wordpress.com and at film-cred.com. And I want to just shout out, I uh, I just did a guest appearance recently on uh, The Real Talk Movie Show. Uh, I came on for a second time where me and Nick Chandler talked about the latest M. Night Shyamalan movie, Knock at the Cabin. When went into spoilery details about that. Also, I discussed a bit more about the book, which I actually read. That's right. I read a book, everybody. Fancy me. Um, And I compared it to the movie as well. Um, You can uh, find that, once again, it's The Real Talk Movie Show. I had a lot of fun there with Nick. But uh, for more of uh, the show, please subscribe to us on places like Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcasting platforms. If you're listening on Talk Film Society, our podcast network, why not listen to all the other great shows on the network? And uh, you can also dig into the archives on our Podbean main feed for like 200 episodes or so before we even join Talk Film Society. And anything else, if you can't support us on the Patreon, money can be tight. That's cool, we get it. That $1 for, once again, bonus podcasts and to vote in polls for future movies we cover. Not everybody can do that, but uh, the completely free way to help us out is to rate, review, or simply share the show around to give us more visibility out there. But now, James, before we hang on out, we're going to be doing our picking for next week. Yes, at the end of every episode, we have two good picks and two bad picks. You know, Adam submits his choices, like I said earlier. So I have his two good picks for next week's episode and my two bad picks. And these are each assigned number between 1 and 10. So uh, the other person, in this case James, has to pick number between 1 and 10 for both those choices. And whenever that's closest to gets us our good and our bad picks. So, for example, James could say, "Uh, I'm going to pick number 3. And I'll say, okay, that's closest to number one, which is this particular title. And thus we have to cover that one for the next topic. And uh, our next episode is very interesting because it's coinciding with uh, right before the Academy Awards are going to be happening. Um, And we like doing something kind of related to the Oscars to some degree. And uh, we decided to do a fun thing where we're going to be talking about best picture follow-ups. So basically, these are movies directed by directors who at least direct the best picture winner from the previous uh time uh, was a previous film and so uh, this would be the films that they follow that up with for example like with uh schindler's list was steven Spielberg's best picture winner he followed up with the lost world jurassic park so that could be in potential contention could be interesting i'm curious how do you feel about that as a topic james that's a really interesting way to approach it yeah because, especially,
1: you're probably going to get some, in a reference to a podcast we both listen to, some blank check projects
0: for this. Yes, that's very true. Uh, it gives, you know, that carte blanche after the Best Picture win, a lot of things mm. could happen. Uh, but, yeah, so Adam has the two good picks, and I have the two bad picks. So I have them both here, signed numbers between 1 and 10. James, please, for the good picks first, number between 1 and 10.
1: Okay, I'm going to go for in honor of Creed being Creed's place in the Rocky franchise, number seven.
0: Okay. That's very close to number eight, uh, where Adam has um, the best picture follow-up for Mr. William Friedkin after The French Connection, which was nominated for a Best Picture Oscar in its own right and a lot of other Oscars, especially for, you know, this very weird uh, off-kilter horror film, The Exorcist.
1: Oh, fuck yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Right? Yeah. A lot of interesting stuff there. Though, on the other side of things, over at number two, uh, Adam had the best picture follow-up for two, you know, very celebrated directors who had won screenplay Oscars before they won uh, director and picture for No Country for Old Men. He had the Coen brothers' Burn After Reading, which I feel is a very underrated movie. A lot of fun. Definitely a weird movie to follow up No Country with, but it fits perfectly for the Coens. I've actually not seen Burn After Reading. Oh, very good movie. Would definitely mm. recommend it. That's why, right guess. Yes, uh, but now, for my two bad picks, James, number between one and ten.
1: Okay, Um, Supergirl was released um, after the third Superman film, so I'm going to go for number four.
0: All right. Number three. I have mm. a rather infamous example of a Best Picture follow-up for, especially not a very celebrated Best Picture winner, one that's looked down upon, really, <laughs> in hindsight, from a guy who... Um, At least for a while, was the star of a very popular television show, um, and his director in his own right, and he starred in that best picture winner, *Dances with Wolves*. I have Kevin Costner's follow-up of *The Postman*. Oh dear. Yep, I haven't seen this one. I've only heard it's infamously terrible. Same. Can't wait. (laughs) I can't wait. You're welcome. About that. Yes, uh, I haven't seen the other one too here, which I'd heard not necessarily great things about. Um, It is the best picture follow-up for... uh, I believe the director's name is John Madden, who did Shakespeare in Love. Uh, Yes, it is John Madden. John Madden's follow-up to Shakespeare in Love, which was uh, Captain Corelli's Mandolin, which is a movie where Penelope Cruz and Nicolas Cage fall in love with each other in Italy, apparently. I've heard it's very bad.
1: I think I've heard Nicolas Cage plays a Greek man, so that'll be interesting.
0: Oh. Wow. Okay, so... (laughs) Yeah, so next time it'll be The Postman and The Exorcist. Two very fun films. I can't Sounds wait like the beginning of a joke. <laughs> so The Exorcist <laughs> and The Postman walk into a bar. Yes, uh, find out the punchline of that joke next time. But until then, everybody, don't fight over Hart Bachner without a beard. You're a strong, independent woman. You don't need no Hart Bachner without a beard.
1: <laughs> Go for a Michael B. Jordan instead.
0: Yeah, more of a real man. I completely abandoned my plans for world domination for Michael B. Jordan. Why not?